0: 132nd episode of my podcast Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the Newsbooks Network which has as its motto sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is can China build a coalition. I'm joined by Andrew Small. He is the author of No Limits: The Inside Story of China's War with the West. The publisher is Melville House Publishing. Andrew is a senior transatlantic fellow with the Asia program at the German Marshall Fund of the United States. His previous book, The China Pakistan Axis, received broad praise from the likes of the New York Review of Books, The Economist, and Foreign Affairs. He joins us today from Berlin. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Thanks very much for having me on. Absolutely. So, uh, briefly, what's the book about?
1: So, I mean, when I set out to write the book, I'd originally Uh, started with the intention of making sense of Europe's role for the US in this emerging contest between the United States and China. Um, It became apparent that as the US rivalry with China was starting to take on not just military characteristics, but where economics and technology were at the core of this rivalry now that Europe was going to start mattering a lot more in this contest. Um, This wasn't just going to be about a pivot to Asia or a rebalancing to the Indo-Pacific. This was going to be about whether the Western allies, all of the advanced industrial democracies could pull together Um, and whether Europe with its um, substantial uh, concentration of economic and financial and technological power was aligned with the United States uh, or not. Um, And so I kind of embarked on this process of of research that started with that premise. Um, But in the course of that, you started seeing all of these pretty revolutionary changes in how Europe itself started thinking about uh, China. Um, In in the early stages of the research, the German Federation of Industry put out this paper calling China a systemic competitor, Um, the European Union came out to declare China a systemic rival Um, and so I ended up trying to do something quite different which was basically to try and make sense of two things. One was how was it that without being prompted by uh, a single event, an economic shock, an invasion or something, um, this broad swathe of countries across the industrialized world were going through this huge revision of their fundamental assumptions about China, overhaul all of their policies pretty much that governed their approach for decades and starting to cooperate with each other openly uh, in their collective response to that. Um, And then there was the other side of the equation, which I think is how you've kind of uh, framed the the podcast, which was what was going on on the coalition building on the other side? How was China's own thinking when it came to alliances, alignment uh, and coalition building moving? And what could the Chinese coalition in response uh, look like? And so one chunk of the book deals with the first set of questions. um, And then the latter part of the book deals with um, that other piece of it. How do we move into an era of a contest of coalitions, a contest of systems? Um, How straightforward is it for the two sides to do that coalition building? And and what's this going to mean for the shape of future geopolitics and geoeconomics?
0: Okay. And and to go right to emotions for at least one moment here in in the interview, um, you mentioned repeatedly, in fact, a real emphasis on the lack of trust that engenders from China's interactions with other countries. Would you say in the act of, of, uh, I guess, coalition building that uh, democracies may be more open and therefore better able to generate trust? Do they have an inherent advantage in, in forging alliances as opposed to more authoritarian governments such as China?
1: That's actually a very important question. And and I think it's, it, it has been the case that for some time, when we would looked at coalition building on the Chinese side, we'd said, this group of countries that China is dealing with, a, they don't trust each other. And uh, B, insofar as they are able to coordinate policies together, it's a pretty motley crew. Um, you basically have a cluster of countries that are North Korea, Iran, um, Cambodia, some occasional disaffected others, Pakistan, of course, as you mentioned with my previous book, is a close partner of China's. Um, but you weren't really seeing something in this beyond a sort of periodic coalition of the disaffected. Um, I think the big game changer for from China's perspective, was Russia. Could they get Russia uh, on board? From the Chinese alliance thinkers, Russia's really been the big prize. And I think the striking thing is it's been the big prize for Xi Jinping through his entire time as uh, General Secretary of, of, of the party. Um, but that has been a history totally marked um, by pervasive mistrust between the two sides. They've never been able to hold together a real level of alignment for more than a, a very limited period of, of time. Whereas on the other side of this, um, despite some of the differences that you know we we, we We've seen in, in in recent years and, and across uh, the decades between Europe and the United States, between the U.S. and its its allies in Asia, this is a much deeper and more potent. Coalition of, of, of countries that has been able to engender a level of mutual trust that does look qualitatively different from what you have on the Chinese side. So I think it's still I, I think there's still a substantial edge that the US has. I think it's understood on the Chinese side to be one of the biggest weaknesses that they have in a certain sense in the contest that they see unfolding in this struggle that they they see with the the, the West. That um, in in the end. Um, despite their efforts to divide uh, the United States and its, its, its democratic allies, it has been a grouping that's largely been able to operate um, on, a, on a coherent basis and China's always struggled to do that. The big question is, can they get there with Russia right now? And I think that's what they're now testing out.
0: Sure, and and let's stay with with the the Chinese Russian connection here. I mean, I'm very struck by the fact that Xi is 69 years old, Putin is 70. Putin has just obviously gone into the Ukraine. Uh, everyone's wondering whether or not Xi is going to go after Taiwan here at some point. I mean, what's your sense of that? I know that's putting you at risk of having to make some sort of prediction or at least f- forecast of what's going. But uh, as I read your book and knowing in part that you're based in Berlin, I kept thinking about the buildup. Of Germany prior to World War One, and you know, I started thinking about timeframes and wondering, my God, what are what are we possibly facing here in the near term?
1: Yeah, and I mean, I when I when I was in when I lived in Beijing in in, in the mid two thousands, and I used to get these readouts every now and then from the meetings that visiting leaders would have. Uh, one of the ones that struck me, and I mentioned quite early in the book, was was one of the visits by Putin um, to to Beijing. And the readout from the Chinese uh, Politburo Standing Committee members who had met with him t- through certain other third parties to to me was that they'd really had this kind of meeting of minds, um, not necessarily on the overall geostrategic picture, but but certainly on their domestic. Issues that they had this kind of shared outlook when it came to pushing back against what they saw as US led color revolutions. They were kind of trading tips on domestic authoritarian techniques, internet censorship foreign NGOs, all of these sorts of things. Um, and so, I mean, I think this is the question when it comes to when how, how the two sides look at each other. You do have increasingly a view that is a common strategic outlook that, that says that the primary challenge that they both face is their contest again, not just with the United States, but with the West, with the Western liberal order in, in, in general, um, and a growing willingness, not just on Russia's side, which we've seen over a longer arc, but on the Chinese side, um, to push back against that more openly and in ways that look more dangerous, as you mentioned in your your, your question with, with Taiwan. But you do also have this kind of like-mindedness element that's that's there. Xi Jinping seems to have had an affinity with with Putin, um, he's met with him more than any other leader. He keeps making it a priority to go to Moscow at essentially every opportunity since since he um, uh, became general secretary of of the party. Um, and I, I think his, I mean, for him, his his, his father um, uh, spent a lot of time in the Soviet Union. Um, there seems to be a particularly kind of fond uh, memory of the the better days of the Sino-Soviet alliance uh, there. Um, And so you do have a sense in which the two sides, particularly since the annexation of Crimea um, in 2014, have, have really been trying to push past a lot of the Outstanding areas of mistrust between them. Um, uh, they've they already got past all the other issue the issues they used to have. They wouldn't do major energy deals. Russia wouldn't sell China advanced weapons systems. All of all of these sorts of things we'd already seen. Um, but in the most recent couple of years, as we saw with the joint statement that provides partly the name of the book, the No Limits uh, joint statement that Putin and Xi issued last year, um, and then reinforced by the, the visit to Moscow, um, I think they are finding ways to to um, uh, convert their shared outlook on the world into more practical areas of, of cooperation, whether that's going to be joint weapon systems development, development, um, uh, or just the mutual support that's provided economically, diplomatically, um, the and, and and even financially, where they both I think want to build a sort of sanctions resilient international architecture um, to to deal with you know the sort of things that Russia has been been dealing with from um, uh, U.S. and Western um, sanctions. So I, I fear it's heading in a direction um, that is quite hard to reverse on on this, and and where the two sides have decided that whatever they dislike about each other whatever they don't trust about each other it's more important that they're able to get past those those issues um because they it's sufficiently important on the the single most important struggle that they that they have
0: yeah well, I'm also struck, and you mentioned in the book their their affinity for for Stalin Neither um, either one of them backs off one iota in believing in in Stalin's legacy, which yeah. which brings up an interesting thing i I'm a facial coder, so I look at people's expressions and, and writing a book called Two Cheers for Democracy. I spent a lot of time in the last section looking at the question of is there a kind of a signature emotional uh nature to someone who's an autocratic leader versus a more open democratic leader and it often came down to how much disgust and uh anger they showed in Putin's case and there is a separation here I'm curious if that you think this plays in any way in Putin's case I did see anger but I also saw saw fear and contempt whereas chi is pretty uniformly buttoned up and it's a small smirk of contempt a little semblance of a smile and, and a r- lot of focus, a lot of very low-grade anger. So it's the fear that stands out as the difference between them. And, of course, Putin is now the more junior partner in this emerging coalition.
1: And that's very interesting. Um, I, I, I mean, I, I think it's, it's interesting the degree to which, on Xi Jinping's part, he's had to do this kind of bending-over-backwards job to conceal and restrain whatever skepticism, and, and whether it's contempt or or not. Um, I mean, clearly on the Chinese side, there is a view that Russia has made some calculations that have have weakened its position, um, that the judgment calls have been wrong in important ways. I think that's going to be how they see in in the end, the invasion of Ukraine uh, as as well. I, I think that's a calculation that, that they would have considered to be ill judged. They thought that there were some previous military uh, uh, adventures that Russia had been involved in, including the annexation of Crimea, including what they did in in, in Syria, that that were relatively successful. But um, I think you do have this question on on the Chinese side about whether there is this kind of looking down on um, where Russia is now, but simultaneously an understanding that uh, you have to. You have to tampen this down. You have to make sure that you show Russia respect, that you show Putin respect, um, and that this is the precondition to being able to establish the kind of relationship that, that you need. Um, and I mention in the book this this moment um, after uh, Crimea where uh, Xi Jinping essentially issues this edict to all of the companies that are going in to negotiate with the Russians on, on the Chinese side uh, to say to them, don't negotiate as if these companies are you know, have their backs against the wall, don't exploit them. Um, uh, This is something we'd seen Chinese companies do before with Iran and certain other countries. Um, But essentially to say the stakes are too high Politically and in other ways, uh, for you to damage this by going ahead and, and and doing this, negotiate on normal terms. Don't don't do stupid deals, but at the same time, um, you know, don't be exploitative and, and create that impression. And so, I think the way you characterize these dynamics right now, um, and 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 what you were seeing. Um, uh, it's not a bad encapsulation of of some of those trends that that we're seeing on 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 the chinese side and and how this has has moved and and certainly russia and putin are in a much more anxious position on on this at the moment the balance has shifted quite markedly um and in a certain sense For Russia, this is now a matter of necessity that that China is a partner. For China, this is still an element of choice um, to this. This is a decision that Xi Jinping has made himself also to to move as closely to Russia in these circumstances. And he could decide otherwise uh, in principle. And I, I think that's reflected now in the political dynamics that we see between them.
0: Yeah, well, I've traveled in both countries, and uh, China, of course, struck me as very productive, very focused, and Russia as much more disorganized, um, even almost chaotic in some ways. Um, so the, the um, U.S. military, if I'm not mistaken, recently said that they anticipated a strong possibility, at least— that uh, China could move on Taiwan within the next five years. I sort of asked that question earlier. Kind of got uh, we got a very good answer, but we didn't quite get there. Do you have any perspective on, on that? Do you have the same foreboding that uh, seems the Pentagon has?
1: Yes, I mean, I, I suppose I answered some of the the China Russia piece of this, but 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 on on that part, um, what we have on the timelines for this is. We have a timeline from uh, that Xi Jinping has put in place for kind of military readiness, and this is going to be a big threshold um, that China crosses in in the next few years. I think the time the, the intended timetable for this is twenty twenty seven. Um, but I think what you're seeing in terms of what the Pentagon and um, and various um, others on the U.S. side are now raising is this is going to be a matter of choice for China as well. It's going to be a question of um, when and if. Um, they can seize Taiwan rather than whether they're capable of doing it at all and you know that simply hasn't been true before. Um, and so I think there's a lot more anxiety right now about what the calculations are on the Chinese side about getting deterrence right about getting Taiwan's defense right, um, and about whether one could be surprised um, by and, and and miscalculate when China might decide to to move my assessment, is I mean my, my own assessment is that um, uh, you know China's still not ready um, and I I'm, I'm still not sure whether they're going to be confident enough um, particularly given the, the the lack of combat experience that the PLA has they haven't been involved in a war since 1979 um, uh, and and I think there's still going to be um, Questions on the Chinese side, and um, particularly after what they've seen in the in the last year about sure. whether they make a big mass miscalculation there, because they've got one shot at getting this right in a certain sense. Um, it's, it, if they get it wrong, there's a real risk to the party's legitimacy. Um, and I think what they're also trying to assess is how much damage is is caused, for instance, to their uh, long-term economic. Situation in the way that we're seeing with with Russia, sanctions haven't prevented Russia from doing what it's doing or changed its approach on the battlefield, but they're going to impair Russia's technological progress and its entire economic future as a result of this. And in some ways, this matters more to China even than it does to to Russia. So I I still think there's going to be hesitation, but we're going to move into a zone on this where they they may see an opportunity at a certain um, moment, and they may see a window in which they decide they have to act. And we're going into essentially a much more dangerous few years as a result of that. Sure.
0: Um, two more questions before we end. I remember when I was in Beijing and in the Forbidden City, there was a plaque that essentially said that they they saw themselves, China, as the center of the universe. Well, we we have Macron in, in Beijing. Um, so we have this whole dance of uh, protecting our, our democracy, and yet we also want economic viability and China's a big market. Um, how do you see those tensions between uh, upholding democracy and upholding the economy playing out uh, maybe particularly from a european perspective
1: i mean this was a tricky visit where i think the european side and macron brought the european commission president with him as well as von der and um, yep. partly to send a message on ukraine and um, partly on this china russia question um, and uh, to signal essentially that if china were to provide lethal aid to to Russia, this would um, have, you know, significant damage on the wider relationship with with Europe. Macron, of course, trying to solicit China's uh, help as well to put pressure on Russia, even though that, for the reasons we've discussed, I think it's completely unrealistic. Um, but simultaneously, bringing this huge business delegation with him, um, as you know, on the lion in the week in the week before had talked had made this very significant speech in which she kind of laid out this pretty forceful case about. Uh, concerns about where China was headed, and talking about European need to to de-risk. I think there's a big debate at the moment about um, what de-risking amounts to. Are you essentially just taking the steps needed to cut off China's access to the most sensitive technologies, and maybe reduce dependencies in a few risky areas, or are you really unraveling some of the economic relationship that's built up uh, between the two sides um, and and trying to? create the conditions and not to have broader market dependencies on, on China, not to risk various in, industrial sectors. Um, and, and I think that's in Europe certainly um, a, a, a debate that's that's sharpening um, at, at the moment. Um, but where I think on the domestic piece of this, which, which says there are areas in which... The presence of, for instance, Chinese tech firms in the European digital um, infrastructure um, could pose real risks to the uh, to to not necessarily the fundamentals of, of, of democracy uh, here in Europe, um, but that certainly can have a pernicious effect on on on, on this. Um, I think that's that's really a debate that's 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 moved uh, much faster and, and and harder in that direction in 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 the last few years. I think there was just a big difference between the you know intertwining of normal trade ties versus the intertwining of this kind of deep level of involvement of you know, Chinese technology um in the the in, in European infrastructure. And you know the book for instance spends a lot of time on, on on 5G and everything that played out um yeah. on, on that front um for instance. But I I mean I, I think some of these things are being wrestled with um by everyone at the moment because we all still have huge commercial relationships with with China, even in the middle of all of this. Um, um, it's true for the U.S., it's true for Japan, it's true for India, um, for anyone who's anxious about um, where China's headed and the security and um, democracy risks that, that China poses. We're doing this in an environment in which we still have this absolutely vast trading relationship at the same time to navigate.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. So, so last question. Um, Winston Churchill, of course, very famously characterized Russia as a, a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. I'm curious how you might characterize China today.
1: Hmm. I mean, the helpful thing about China right now is Xi Jinping has made a lot of things a lot less enigmatic. Um, we have We had to do a lot of deciphering uh, back in the day, and we had to read China's intentions carefully and try and make sense and interpret all of these things. There were internal party documents, there were public statements, and there was what was in the legal system and what was done informally, all of this sort of thing. Xi Jinping's just put a lot of this stuff out there. Um, I mean, if we go to his speech from even a few weeks ago at the National People's Congress, he now just talks openly about um, Western containment, encirclement, uh, and there's, there's a much more explicit um uh, framing of on Xi Jinping's part about struggle um he puts in law uh, things like I mean if you see things like the national intelligence law that require uh Chinese firms to um uh, uh, allow uh, Chinese intelligence um services um to uh, access to you know things like data and 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 um, th- these were the sorts of things that were going on anyway um but he's just made a lot of this much more uh, explicit and 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 direct when he talks economically as well about the importance of building other countries' dependencies on China um, uh, so as to build a, a counterforce um, against Western containment and things like that. I mean, these things are just—he just helpfully spells these things out. In lots, <laughs> yes. in lots of cases, he acts on them. I mean, you can always look at party documents and say, "Well, this is just about you know aspirations," or it's a critique of things that haven't happened yet. In in lots of these cases, this has been a pretty good guide to what Xi Jinping then actually goes about doing so I think it's been a very helpful thing in the the last few years for anyone who was trying to decipher what was actually going on 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 the Chinese side the system is harder to deal with Uh, it used to be that you would um, you know you'd have your friends who would give readouts of internal party discussions and things like that at the moment Xi Jinping makes all of this stuff um, uh, pretty clear Um, and so I think in one way it's become a little bit uh, easier particularly with the concentration of power that he has as well uh, to be able to interpret at least in the coming Years where things are um, headed uh, in in a way that I think beforehand you had to um, decipher a whole series of different factions in the party, different interest groups, and things. At the moment, it's Xi Jinping, and it's it's, it's pretty much what he says he wants to do.
0: Yeah, no, I, I think that's an absolutely excellent answer. Um... Wonderful stuff. Uh, So I want to thank you, Andrew, so much for being my guest here today. Uh, For my listeners, this has been episode 132, Can China Build a Coalition? My guest, Andrew Small, he is the author once again of No Limits, the Inside Story of China's War with the West. If you've enjoyed today's show, please give it a rating or review on iTunes. Finally, as listeners know, I like to conclude every episode with an epigram. In this case, I found something from the poet W.H. Auden, who I think meant this as a joke, but the world has changed so much that it might actually prove to be prophecy. He said, I'll love you, dear. I'll love you till China and Africa meet and the river jumps over the mountain and the salmon sing in the street. Until next time, take care and be well.